0: Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Audio-Technica,
1: Loughton Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com.
0: This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 149. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your
2: host, Matt Boudreaux.
0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 149 you're listening to, and if you're listening to this on a Monday, happy Monday to you, and hey, no matter what day of the week it is, happy whatever day of the week it is to you. So welcome back. My guest today is Mr. Dom Morley, who uh, is a British uh, engineer and record producer. Yeah, I know. I've interviewed so many Americans. I think it's time to uh, go around the world a bit and uh, step outside my own borders here. So uh, Dom Morley is joining us. Dom got his start at uh, DEP International Studios in Birmingham, Uh, before moving to London in 99 where he uh, worked at Metropolis Studios and that's where he got to work with Tony Visconti, Phil Spector and Mark Ronson and his work with Mark Ronson of course led to the work that he did with uh, Mark on the Amy Winehouse record Back to Black and that of course got him a a record of the year Grammy in 2008 so uh, that led to a lot of other work with uh, Sting, Adele, uh, Kate Walsh, the police, Jeff Beck. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he's been a, a busy guy. So Dom Morley talking to us from uh, about 40 minutes outside London in a little farmhouse-type studio that he has set up out in the middle of nowhere. So uh, Dom joins me for a chat from out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, there it is. Uh, let's see. AES just wrapped up. It's Monday as I record this, and hopefully as you're listening to this. So uh, I got a little treat for us coming up just in a little bit. I gave a phone call to my brother from another podcast, Lidge Shaw, from Recording Studio Rockstars, and Lidge was on his way out the door uh, from his brother's place in Brooklyn, and he was headed back to Nashville, so we spoke to Lidge as he walked down the street and he gave us kind of a wrap-up of what he saw at a uh, some of the gear highlights people highlights so lidge shaw coming up really quick and we'll chat with lidge via phone call. And before we get to Lidge, I, w- I want to tell you about a, a Kickstarter campaign that's going on by a very small company, very small. I think it's like one person. And I'm talking about Spencer Tweedy from Fjord Audio, and I'm going to include a link to his Kickstarter campaign. He's doing these mic cables that not only do they look great, but they sound great and they're they're well built. So it's not just a, a pretty microphone cable Kickstarter campaign, I assure you. The cables have that look and feel of the old um, irons, you know, old irons that you iron your clothes with. Right. So the old power cables that were, had that braided cable on it. Of course, this cable is a lot nicer than that in terms of, uh, flexibility. So what it is, is he's, uh, he's got Canari uh, Canary star quad inside these cables, and the connectors are the Switchcraft AAA series connectors. And the jacket is a uh, 100% cotton braid woven by Conway Electric in California, which gives it this nice nice flex and nice feel to it. And, uh, he's got it in uh, five different colors and I'll include the link in the show notes for you, but it's, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. He just wanted to make some, uh, good looking cables that sound great, that are not stupidly expensive. So check it out. I'll, like I say, I'll include the link. Uh, Fjord is spelled F-J-O-R-D. So, uh, if you just you know google fjord audio kickstarter you'll come up with it probably pretty quick but if in doubt just go on over to workingclassaudio.com and check that out that's right fjord audio well i tell you what let's uh let's get on the phone and call lid shaw here from recording studio rockstars and get the rundown of what occurred at aes i wasn't there so i can't tell you so we're going to depend on our friend lidge to tell us so let's do that right now hey. What are you doing?
1: Man, I'm finally leaving New York. Wow. I'm walking back by my brother's house, grab my bag and get to the subway. Oh, cool. You called me at a good time, man. How was AES? AES was awesome, dude. I got to hang out for multiple days, also with Chris Salim of Mixdown.online, who we know and love. And we both stayed over here in Brooklyn and would commute in every day to the Javits Center. I think it's the Jacob Javits Center. So that's the big conference building. And it's this massive glass palace on the outside. And then you kind of go in and the floor was pretty, pretty big. It was about like five to six rows or maybe seven rows of manufacturer booths that, that were all displaying all kinds of cool new equipment, mics, outboard gear, software, services for studios. And there were just a ton of cool things, and it was much better than SummerNAM. So SummerNAM had just like a, a little area, you know. But like the thing is, that at AES there was none of that. Um, you didn't have people noodling on guitars and drummers beating on drum sets while you're trying to <laughs> talk to people.
0: <laughs> That's funny. If, from an equipment perspective, did you see anything that? kind of caught your attention or blew you out of the water. I saw some of your posts.
1: Yes, yes. And actually, actually I've been furiously editing away videos. I did 15 interviews at different booths on the floor. Uh, Things like I just finished a couple of great interviews with Isotope. So they explained the new Tonal Balance plug-in and how it integrates with Ozone and Neutron. Um, And that seemed like a really cool system that they've got. So that was kind of cool. You know, um, let's see, I also went over to the Warm Audio booth and, and got to do a tour of that and see all their great gear. I went to Tegler Audio Manufacturer, so a company out of Germany that's making some really cool gear that is uh, remote controllable from the plug-in. So you actually can, it's, it's funny where some people are where a lot of people are making plugins that are controllable by, the har- by hardware units. These guys are actually making hardware units that are controllable by the plug Ah, very cool. <laughs> so different way of thinking of it. And um, locking and unlocking and grabbing luggage as I go. No problem. You're, you're in Brooklyn, you were staying at your brother's? Yeah, I was staying at Nate's, uh, which was great, man. It was really cool. And we had, had a really good time hanging out and stuff. AES was so intense that I worked myself completely sick, and now I'm just about, you know, starting to recover. Whoa. It was just like, it was intense, man. It was long, long, intense days. It was just as much hustle as Summer Nam was, if you remember how busy that felt. I'm used to a pretty
0: intense trade show schedule.
1: Yeah, I guess it's all kind of new for me, and um, I've realized that these trade shows are not, they're not really about hanging out. They kind of are, but because I'm there to work, and really learn and meet people that it's kind of like go, go, go the whole time. But let's see, what else did I see? I also saw um, an interesting plug-in company called G-Audio that makes a VR plug-in. Let's see. uh, Oh, I went to Roswell Pro Audio, of course, saw the new Mini K47, which looked fantastic.
0: Matt's super passionate about what he's doing over there.
1: Yeah, he was great, man, and I got to meet his family and stuff. Excellent. Uh, I also I did an interview at the BAE booth, so I saw um, some of their new pieces of gear. And, of course, they make fantastic emulations of classic gear like the um, 1073 and the 1084s, but they had a couple of new pieces they were showing off, the G10 graphic EQ. I did go by the DPA microphones booth and did a great interview and learned about their new device series, which was um, really pretty cool, man. You can record high-quality um, 2496K into iOS devices or uh, a desktop or laptop using this little teeny converter that they've got.
0: What did you uh, use to do your videos, and who was your cameraman?
1: Oh, uh, my cameraman was Mr. Chris Salim from Mixdown.online. So he, we actually uh, swapped out as each other's cameramen. So we would just go from booth to booth, and he would shoot me doing an interview, or I'd shoot him doing an interview. And uh, it was cool, because that way we got to hang out, you know, the entire day and at the whole thing. And I just used an iPhone. And I used, um, one of the places I stopped was the IK Multimedia booth, and saw their new, they showed off their new i uh, iRig keys and the iRig mic HD2 which they gave, me a, they gave me one of those and I took it around as my interview mic to shoot videos. And I just plugged it into my phone and it worked great. We also stopped by Focusrite. So I did an interview with those guys about their Focusrite Pro Red Series, which is pretty hip. So they've, they basically got components now that you can, you know, modularly grow your studio. But for connectivity throughout a, a house and a home studio, Rather than running mic lines everywhere, you can actually just have use the Ethernet that might already be pre-installed in your house as the connectivity from room to room. that sounds cool. So you can have a two-channel, you know, yeah, on the high end, you can have a 64-in, 64-out interface in the control room. And then on the minimal other end, you could have um, one of their two-channel interfaces in a room that's just going to have, you know, piano in it or an acoustic guitar or just a... You no, know, we only need a couple of mics in one part of the house, but then you can have an eight-channel version in where the drums are. Now you've got, like, a, a good, clean recording close to the source that is being sent up to the control room to the Ethernet channels.
0: Wow. That's, that's great. Great idea.
1: Yeah. And then, oh, and this is the best part, man. I asked him about latency. I was a little skeptical, and he reported that the latency, typically there's three... Um, what do you say, three connections in one of these setups? And the latency on that is 250 microseconds.
0: Not milli, micro. I was like, wait,
1: not a micro. Wow. Less than a millisecond. Okay, interesting. So then I was like, well, wait a minute, hold on. Let me just step back from you a few feet and talk to you. And he reminded me that already the latency between me talking to him right there was greater than the actual digital latency you're going to experience recording with their whole new uh, Pro Red setup. Hmm. Amazing. Yes. Uh, I went by the Avid booth, too, and did a great interview with Eduardo um, all about using their, the collaboration feature of Pro Tools 12. And so he gave us an actual play-by-play example, creating a session out of loops and, and uh, pr- provided virtual instruments from Avid, from Pro Tools, and then sending, freezing a track for a third-party plugin and sending it over to another user who didn't have that third-party plugin using the collaboration feature. And it was just like, it was seamless. It just popped right up on his screen and looked like it could be a whole lot of fun to record with. So that was pretty cool, you know. They really figured out how to make it so that you can creatively collaborate with people anywhere in very close to real time. Wow,
0: that sounds great.
1: I also got to, meet up face to face finally with ian shepherd from production advice uk and uh you know the home mastering master class he was there to do a incredible presentation with bob ludwig live from one of the uh the the big rooms there and and he just totally killed it and explained um how dynamics play an important role through streaming services now in determining just how loud you want your mix to be um, which was really cool and he was also really good at it it was funny he really kind of stole the show because he's just such a good teacher and he he spent so much time explaining and you know using visuals to show exactly what he's talking about so he was able to demonstrate his meter plugs plug into a room full of hundreds of, of engineers and mastering engineers and students and it was awesome he was right up there on stage with bob Ludwig. The father figure of mastering right now, you know, one of the biggest mastering engineers yeah. in the world.
0: A lot of former working class audio guests and uh, recording studio rock star guests doing presentation. Of course, Ian Shepherd, Piper Payne on the mastering end of things, Andrew Sheps. Yeah, a lot of a lot of people. Well, hey man, I know that you're you're trying to get to the train and get to the airport to get back. Uh, to Nashville so I'm glad I caught you thanks for giving us the rundown of uh, AES and what you saw that's really cool
1: dude it's my pleasure and it was so much fun man and you know I got to meet Chad Blake in person and Andrew Sheps and I got to um, say hi to Tom Lord Algae and meet Chris Chris Lord Algae and also uh, shake Dave Pensado's hand and invite them all to be on my podcast so it was such a wonderful opportunity to just meet all these people and, and just be reminded of how vibrant the recording, you know, music community is.
0: Yeah. Wow. And the sound of uh, Brooklyn, New York, in the background. I love it.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm still trying to find the subway here and get to the airport on time. Well, I got to go home and get my dog. Yeah. There.
0: You go do that. And hey, man, good to talk to you. Thanks for uh, taking my call here, and uh, for listeners, uh, obviously, always check out my brother from another podcast, Lid Shaw, recording studio rock stars.
1: Dude, always a pleasure, man. I ran into many people that told me that they were a big fan of your show. So um, it's wonderful, wonderful to know you and uh, be part of the community.
0: Right back at you, Lidge. Well, hey, travel safe, and uh, I'll chat with you later.
1: All right, dude. I'll talk soon, man. Thanks for the call. See ya.
0: Cheers. All right, there it is. Lidge Shaw from Recording Studio Rockstars giving us the rundown of AES. Appreciate him doing that. And for a super-duper complete rundown of everything AES, head on over to Garesluts.com where, of course, you're going to see all the press releases from all the companies and you're going to get a real, real complete rundown of everything and not just the highlights. So, uh, yeah, Gearslits.com. And while we're talking about uh, sponsors, uh, just a shout out, of course, to our friends over at Universal Audio. If you head on over to uaudio.com, you'll find that if you buy and register any new Apollo rack mount interface, that could be the Apollo 8P, uh, the 8, the Apollo 16 or the Apollo Firewire. Through December 31st, 2017, you'll get a U-82 satellite, octo, or quad DSP accelerator. So all you got to do is just buy the Apollo rack, and then then you'll get your free U-82 satellite. So uh, be sure and check that out at uaudio.com. Well, we've run over a little bit here on the monologue on this episode, so uh, let's jump into our interview, of course. Let's do it. Mr. Dom Morley, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Dom, welcome to the podcast. We've done it. We've managed to connect yeah. online.
2: It's been uh, a couple of months of me being busy, then you being busy, and how was South of France?
0: Oh, God, man. It was <laughs> it was great. I mean, you want to talk about, uh, you know, before we actually came on here for the audience, we were talking about Dom being in a rural area. I was in serious rural area and uh, very, uh, very bad internet.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful part of the world, though, isn't it? Absolutely. beautiful.
0: Oh, it's it's definitely it's a lovely place. When I come back to the Bay Area, it makes me think, hmm, maybe I could move there.
2: Yeah, we go there on holiday quite a lot, and every time I spend about a month, like looking through magazines of like looking through internet sites of property in the South of France, and yeah, still haven't done it. I will one day. Yeah.
0: Well, there's a uh, a property listing place here, uh, or a real estate place here in the Bay Area that we pass by, and they have pictures in the windows of places around the world, and one of them's in the south yeah. of France, and it's cheaper than any place here in the Bay Area, and I think,
1: man,
2: yeah,
0: we could just... How could I do it? We could pack yeah. it up and just move. <laughs> I could do the podcast from there. I could mix and master exactly. from there.
2: Yeah, I can mix from out there. Nobody comes here anyway, so I could mix from out there. Yeah.
0: It'd be fine. Well, um, it's great to have you here, and I'll be honest with you, I cannot for the life of me remember how we connected, because it's been so long that I just was caught up in our conversation about how do I I time this so I get you on the show. So I'm not going to worry about how we got connected.
2: Okay, good. Now, I can't remember. I think somebody I work with got in touch with you, but I can't remember who, so... It's fine. Yeah. It's all good. So you're out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of horses and chickens, you say? Yeah, basically um, Oxfordshire, countryside. And uh, it's kind of hard to find, as probably a lot of your uh, kind of listeners who got their own studio know, it's kind of hard to find a good place to have a studio that's kind of soundproofed and, and you know, you're not interfering with other people. And I looked through a load of places that ended up just, there was basically offices. And then this place came up and it's, it's an old place um kind of country home it's been in one family for for 400 years and um I suspect the home's a bit older than that though but basically it's got a load of outbuildings like farm outbuildings that are brick built Mm -hmm. and detached so uh one of these he had going free and it was a cabinet makers previously so I kind of had to do all the treatment but but didn't really have to soundproof it because it's thick made of brick you know and there's nobody around anyway so it was a great kind of location and, and it's only 40 minutes out of London so a lot of kind of people can come up just for the day and sort of decompress as they're out, you know, come out of London and it's just green everywhere and then they have to go back into the smoke again afterwards <laughs> in the evening but it's easily done, you know. It's, it's as easy to get to uh, to my place from West London as it is to get to East London from West London, you know, in terms of oh yeah time, you know. It takes 40 minutes to get here and it takes 40 minutes to get across London so um yeah it kind of works it's good well so are you living out there yeah i do live out here yeah i live about 10 minutes from here
0: oh wow okay yeah so we're gonna have to go back a bit and and we'll lead up to to this but you know, essentially, sure. from what I have gathered, you started, and this is kind of based on a Wikipedia entry, so if it's incorrect, sure. please please correct me, but you started in the late 90s. Correct. Okay. Yes. And you started um, at Dep International Studios.
2: Uh, yeah, I started at Dep International. I started actually, you know, like a lot of people kind of making records in my bedroom with my mate sort of thing and then I wanted to do it professionally so I knocked on a lot of doors of a lot of studios and said I'll make good tea I work for nothing (laughs) and that didn't work for about 40 studios and finally one said yeah right see you on Monday so then uh, that was up in Birmingham which is not where I was from but it was just I'd gone around all the London ones that I knew of and then like Birmingham was the next big city so I went there and and I sort of turned up on Monday and I was kind of doing work experience you know and that studio used work experience people a lot and I was the only one that had stayed past four o'clock in the afternoon because all the other guys had done college and they thought, saw it as part of an extension of college where I was just like you know I get to be in a studio I'm going to stay as long as I'm allowed to stay so I kind of stuck with the session that was there and let me kind of hang around and then um the guy that was producing there was friends with a guy who was the chief engineer, a guy called Mike Exeter, who's chief engineer of this other studio in Birmingham. Mm. So a job came up and I was kind of recommended for the job. So that's how I got my first proper paid, you know, assistant engineer job. And I was there for a couple of years and then uh, came down to London. And after a bit of kind of freelance assisting, got a job at Metropolis in Chiswick, which is in West London. And it was at the time, possibly still the largest independent studio in Europe. Um, cause it was just owned by basically a rich guy mm-hmm. and it was five, five studios plus mastering rooms and programming rooms and all, all sorts. So, um, Yeah, great studio. Great, great one to learn in.
0: And you'd worked with Tony Visconti, Phil Spector, Mark Ronson at
2: Metropolis? Yeah, that was all at Metropolis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was there for, I guess, I was there as an employee. So assistant engineer, in-house engineer, all of that for, I think it was seven years altogether. And sort of went from the guy doing all the rubbish sessions that nobody wanted to do to getting the good ones, you know, by the end. So hence when someone like Phil Spector came by, I said, I'm doing that one. I'm doing that one. And, uh, yeah, got Uh, to work with him. You know, I failed to ask this of people that are the ones who really
0: stretch themselves, you know, the ones that stay at the studio and maybe they don't have a life outside of the studio. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the early days of trying to, you know, get your foot in the door. And once you have a foot in the door, keeping the door, you know, open to yourself. I'm curious about at that time at Metropolis, doing all the gigs that nobody wanted to do and being around all the time. What was your life outside like as far as making a living or having a place to stay, social life, significant other?
2: Yeah, it it paid just enough to live on, Um, so which was partly due to the, I think we were probably on minimum wage as far as I remember, but the hours were so great that you could kind of get by on that. And rents weren't as crazy as they are now in London because this was like year 2000, 2001 around around that sort of time so they weren't mental like they are now and I had a girlfriend who's then my wife now my wife and we've been together since before I started in studios so we were together anyway so that obviously talking about splitting rent and stuff I I always lived with her so so I didn't have to afford that on my own and uh, her job had very demanding hours as well so it sort of worked out it didn't feel one-sided that I was going to be working late you know because she might well be working late as well or she would occasionally have stuff to do at weekends just like i would have a session at the weekend so we kind of because we both did jobs that were like that it it made that less weird Uh so i think that other people would struggle if they i I could understand other people struggling where their girlfriend or or boyfriend or whatever is um is doing a job that's much more nine to five and doesn't understand why you want to be at work at two in the morning still
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, did did your wife have uh, what I would call a corporate job?
2: Yeah, yeah, she worked in a bank.
0: That's funny, because I, I, I'm coming across this more and more, and I haven't really talked about it on the show. My wife works a corporate job and has since we've been together for, I don't know, since, since 94. And it just seems that more and more there's a lot of women doing the corporate jobs and guys doing the studio artistic jobs you know oh really wow it's your if if your situation is still similar or you know maybe it was for many years it seems that many other people are in the same position
2: right that's interesting because I don't know many in Mm. the same position as we are but um obviously it's happening it's happening there we go
0: yeah yeah I, I, I can vouch for it well that's interesting okay so Rent split between the two of you, she's working demanding hours, you're working demanding hours. Okay, am I being, uh, you know, kind of narrow-focused here by saying that essentially it was your work with Mark Ronson that kind of put you on the map?
2: No, that's reasonable. And that it was after that and, yeah, and those things. And after the Amy Winehouse album came out particularly that I I went freelance from Metropolis because I felt like I had I'd kind of grown enough as a name and, and I had a, a good enough CV and people were calling me about doing engineering work that wasn't necessarily at Metropolis. Did you say a a good CV? CV, sorry, resume in American. Okay, okay. We say say CV, curriculum vitae. Oh, okay. (laughs) We use the Latin because we're pretentious in Europe.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good CV, okay. Definitely learned something new today. The time spent there at Metropolis and these different folks that you worked with, was that curious about the learning experiences there for you if there's any key things that stick out from any of these different people whether they were good or bad things
2: yeah definitely I mean there's a lot that you learn obviously you you're in studios for very long periods of time with all sorts of different people. And there's a lot of different styles that you see. Therefore you kind of learn off the ones that you prefer, Mm. you know, and that sort of fit with you, if you know what I mean. Like on vocals, I'm very big, actually with everybody really, but particularly on vocals, I'm very big on, on getting, getting quite intense on the performance. Cause I work with some people who producers who would go, right. It's time for vocals. And they'd do three takes and say thanks and and then that would be that done. And I'd be sitting there going, but but you've he's just had three runs at it. Surely you want to get more out of it than that and see what you can push him to and you know and 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 so then I would more I, I would do that session and think, oh, that was interesting. Whereas I would sort of try and emulate people that would work a bit more intensely with artists and and try and push them to be doing their very greatest work at that moment when they're on the microphone. Um, so there's there's a lot you learn and there's a lot you like positively and there's a lot that you learn that's like, okay, that's not me. That's not how I'm going to be making records. So the, there is tons. And unfortunately with people like, you know, like Phil Spector, you know, he, who makes records in a very different way to anyone else that I worked with, that was a fascinating thing and not necessarily something that I would do, not because I don't agree with it. It's just not the way my brain works, you know what I mean? so So for example, he would, the band played a track you know, we recorded the whole thing as a as a one off performance, and then he listened to it about ten times, and then he'd uh, he'd go right, okay, drummer, I want you to play the pattern that you were playing, but instead of hit the snare, hit the floor, Tom, and don't play the hi hat this time round, and then bass player, that when you went to the G, do that an octave down, and and he basically broke everybody in the band's part into two layers, hmm. and we recorded one layer. And then he said, "Okay, now this time round, drum, you're hitting the snare this time like you were with the with the pattern before, and play the hi hat, but do something on the floor tom where you were doing the kick tom, uh, the kick drum before, so that gets doubled up." And and you could see him building the wall of sound. You know that he'd basically listened to the track ten times or something, and then he just dissected it and put it back together again in his head in the way that that could be played by each musician twice to build it up. It's quite amazing, wow! Quite a mad, yeah, sort of process to to watch happen, and it sounded great. It sounded really, really good.
0: Have you been in many sessions and observed behavior of a producer with regards to those assistants working around them that you found to be counterproductive or demeaning?
2: You know what? It's incredibly rare. There's a lot of people have assumed that with the big stars you get bigger egos. But I never really found that. I found in the studio that really got left behind. I did once, and I won't name the name, but I did once work with a producer who was a horrendous human being. But that was once in seven years of being there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was only... It was only about five days and i was engineering and charging a fortune for it because i knew what it was like
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you gave him the asshole tax
2: yeah exactly because i'd done a couple of days with him before and saw what he was capable of and i knew this session was going to be a difficult one for him and i knew he wasn't going to cope with that so i thought right okay i'll do it because I'm the only one who's going to be able to cope with this. Because I am very, I, I kind of got known for being able to be put with the difficult people because I could I could make it a relaxed environment for them and they would be on sort of on the best behavior you're going to find somebody in. So I always got put with those people. And I knew if anyone else at the studio had been put in that session, they just wouldn't, it wouldn't have worked, wouldn't have lasted. So, so I did it, but I charged a lot of money for it. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh,
0: when it came to the success here with the Amy Winehouse record, got record of the year, um, record of the Grammy Award in, uh, was it 2008? Well, first of all, I'm sure it felt great uh, hmm. to have that happen. But did you notice in the work, did that pick up? Did that change for you? Did, did anything shift?
2: A little, but actually, I think it wasn't the Grammy that made the difference. It was just it was the album. The album was obviously very successful before the Grammy came along, and and the singles were big and all of that. So, um, so then I was getting work through through that, and also, which which was more related to the fact that the album was a big hit than than the fact that there was a Grammy attached to it. I think there were a couple of times the Grammy might have helped, but only a couple whereby people that I hadn't worked with before and then they've heard that you've got a Grammy will think okay he can't be that bad then he must be all right you know what I mean he's probably not deaf if he's got a Grammy (laughs) but I think it was actually the the album itself which made more of a difference which I think I was fortunate in that in a lot of ways well to an extent the Amy album is is liked because of how it sounds like it does sound interesting and and it was a bit different to what was out at the time and there's been a lot that's followed that's similar. But at the time when it came out, doing that kind of mixture of those sounds that we were, we were getting wasn't what everyone was doing. So it was kind of interesting in that respect, which I think kind of helps in terms of having engineered it. Yeah. I think. Interesting. I could be wrong, but that's just my theory.
0: Now at that time, were you an employee of, uh, Metropolis?
2: Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So th- there was a bit of serendipity that came along there actually with Mark because, um, I'd just been working, the reason why I worked with Tony Visconti was on a, um, a Morrissey thing. It was all the B-sides for one of his albums. It was just getting there, record the band, record Morrissey, and then some rough mixes. And Morrissey was in, into a very particular vocal sound at the time, which was slightly unusual. And I can't even remember what it was, but I remember Tony explaining to me and saying, it might sound a bit weird to you, but this is what he's into, so we're going to do it. So it's like, "Yep, yeah, obviously, fantastic. And then about two months later, I'm working with Mark, ronson on his album version which we were doing simultaneously with amy's album and a few other things and the there was a track which was the lead single off that album called stop me if you think you've heard this one before which is an old smith song and obviously quite kind of in the title relevant to the fact he's doing a covers album and so we'd been doing some recording on that one day and then mark had to leave to do some dj things and he said um can you just do a rough mix of this to send to morrissey to get approval by the way, he's never approved one of these before, so good luck. I'll see you tomorrow. So then I was like, oh, good. No pressure then. Um, no, this was planned to be the first single and everything. But then I just thought, right, I'll put on the vocal sound that I know Morrissey is particularly into at the moment and uh, and do that kind of slightly odd vocal sound for the mix and see if it works. And it did. So um, that was a little, bit of, a little bit of luck, really, for everyone concerned that um, I... Was happened to be aware of a particular thing he was into. And therefore, the mix got delivered in a way that he would enjoy.
0: Interesting. In that situation, Mark leaves, says, make a rough mix so Morrissey can improve this. How much time do you put into a rough mix like that?
2: In that sort of situation, it was getting... It was probably about 7 o'clock at night or something, and I I sort of thought, I don't want to cost anybody overtime, you know what I mean? Mm. So, you know, the days were booked. So I would have gone until the end of the session it was probably only had about four hours left or something like that before I had to bail because we went to overtime at that point you know it's the sort of thing where you'd like to spend a day on it you know what I mean and blow everybody away but then I would have cost everybody thousands and nobody would have uh, been impressed with that so <laughs> I just put the best <laughs> the best work I could in in the amount of time and and it was and then I worked a lot with Mark after that so kind mm. of it did the job in many respects <laughs> Dom Morley here on the Working Class Audio
0: Podcast. We're going to take a sponsor break with Audio Technica here and pause from our conversation. I want to tell you about the new Audio Technica ATH m 50 xrd That's the red and gold version of their popular ATH M50Xs. It's a new limited edition series, and they just introduced it at AES this past weekend. I'll include a link in the show notes if you want to check those out. So if red and gold is your thing, grab a hold of these because they are limited edition, as I mentioned. So well, let's get back into it with our friend, Dom Morley, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Your jump from staff position to freelance. I'm curious, you know, were the, was there trepidation there for you? It, were you, you know, nervous at all that it wasn't going to go well?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think... I think everybody is at that point, unless you've got a load of work lined up before you make the decision. But it was just time, and we sort of had enough saved that it would be all right for a bit, you know, if, if things went quiet. Another bit of luck that landed is just as I handed in my resignation letter, I got a call from a friend of mine that was working downstairs at one of the studios. And so I went down to see him, and he said, have you got any time? Because um, it was basically, he was off to do the... Um, the reunion tour of the police, you know, they were, you know, they get back together and did that reunion tour. So it was, and he's, um, he's kind of Sting's engineer and has been for years. And he said, uh, I'm going to need a hand out in Tuscany at Sting's place for six weeks. Do you fancy it? <laughs> and that was literally 10 minutes after I'd resigned. It was six weeks of work.
0: No, sorry. <laughs> I, I have cartoons I have to watch. I can't <laughs> <Exactly>. do that.
2: <laughs> so yeah, that was in- incredibly fortunate as a, as a first gig to have,
0: May I ask who, who your Chandler. friend? Who is that?
2: Donald Hodgson. Okay, and uh, yeah, he does. Um, he's done Sting stuff for for years.
0: Okay, wow! Out of the blue,
2: calls you Ooh. up. A hundred percent. Yeah, out of the <laughs> blue. Sting's got a big place in Tuscany. Okay. I think it used to belong to like the Count of Florence or something. It's about an hour out of Florence, um, so it's beautiful. You know, massive.
0: Yeah. Terrible accommodations, uh, right?
2: Shocking. Yeah. 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 yeah the food. Yeah. Was shocking and yeah. so was the wine cellar yeah. third you
0: know. world conditions so <laughs> yeah. sorry although
2: to be fair it was we were working hard it was 12 hour days and it was six to seven days a week and you know it was we were working but it was a nice place to work with a great band
0: yeah i mean <laughs> you were encamped so to speak right i mean you kind of yeah. have like everybody together
2: exactly yeah a
0: little nervous uh first time sting comes in the door i would assume or
2: i had i had met him before okay um because it was on some live thing. I was I was helping Donal out with something else that was at Metropolis. And um I'd gained a few brownie points because it was when he was doing the John Dowland album. He was doing covers on the lute of um a lute composer from the 13th century. Mm. Don Dowland it is, I think that's who it was. Anyway, I'd done it in my we call them A levels. It's the exams you take when you're 18. I'd covered that particular composer in my music A level. Um, so I knew the pieces that we were that we were doing. And I think he was quite surprised that there was somebody who could discuss John Dowland pieces with some amount of knowledge and recognition. So I'd kind of gained some brownie points with Sting again, lucky. <laughs> so um, so that was fun.
0: And on that topic of, you know, being nervous or or meeting somebody like Sting in those situations where you are going to be working, I'm curious if you have any comments on on demeanor. How one carries oneself uh, in a session or when meeting people that you're like, oh my god, that's that's sting. That's you know that's, that's or that's right. you know Morrissey or whoever it is. What is your goal for yourself when it comes
2: to how you carry yourself? It's a difficult one that actually because it's not one that I really plan. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, it's not. I didn't really set out to think about how I would be with people, but I guess I just I was always. Trying to be as normal as I, you know, just being a normal person but polite and they're in charge because it's their session. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to kind of talk over anybody or, or force myself into any sort of conversation, but I will be, you know, ready and waiting. And if we're chatting, then I'm chatting too. So it's a case of it, it's not as a, you're not doing a seen and not heard sort of thing you're part of the session and you're part of the room. And often, you know, in those situations, you know, there's five of you in a room 12 hours a day for a few months. So you're going to be, you know, you're on first name terms. You know each other reasonably well at that period. But as well, just respect for the position that they're in and they're, you know, I I think people that are that famous struggle a little with everybody wants to be their mate. You know what I mean? Everybody wants to be their best friend. Mm -hmm. And there's often a, a, there's, there's often a slight wall of being a very yeah being being friendly without wanting to give the impression that you're going to be best mates from now on because that's what some people will think in that position. Yeah, I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, that totally makes sort of...
0: sense. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to say, "Hey, Sting, give me your phone number and your email address. I'd like to stay in touch."
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah, because that would be uncomfortable for him. That would be weird. But <laughs> we'll still talk about you know, we'll talk. Still- Talk about stuff that's on telly that we might have both seen or, you know, (laughs) stuff like that, you know. So, yeah, I guess it's kind of finding the right ground, which you kind of have to be on your toes with, with each person you work with, because they've all got a different kind of level of where that wall is, you know.
0: When you're in the context of a session and you know, over the course of time, you know, it's not always going to be enjoyable. There's going to be moments when it's, you don't feel comfortable yourself for one reason or the other. Maybe you don't feel good or maybe somebody made Mm. you feel a certain way. Have you had moments like that in, in your, your time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I've had to work ill, you know, just because that's how it is. And then it's concentrating is a difficult thing when you haven't eaten in a few days and, yeah, you're struggling to stand. So I've had to do that a few times. But in terms of people making me feel uncomfortable, that's that's not really happened. I've never, I guess I'm very thick-skinned. So, you know, I can just kind of not worry about that sort of thing very much if somebody's having, generally, I mean, the reason why I used to get put with difficult people is because I I could always see it from their point of view. You know, if an artist is difficult and people are struggling with their, you know, if they've got an attitude about them or something like that, it's you know it comes from a place of insecurity and i kind of feel like it's the job of everybody on the session that isn't the artist and therefore the one paying for the whole show to to make sure it's the most comfortable and creative and and welcoming environment that that can be so i sort of found that those people that that you might have thought would make things difficult and and make you feel uncomfortable didn't really with me because I made sure that wasn't the environment where they would feel insecure Mm. and therefore turn into that sort of person that they could be not something I really struggled with.
0: It would seem that if you, uh, if you're told someone's difficult and you come at them like they are going to be difficult, it is going to be difficult. But if you, of course, embrace them and become their ally and try to, you know, help bring value to the situation, then most likely the difficulties, uh, go away
2: disappear yeah and sometimes you know there'll be a test you know there'll there'll be you know they'll ask you to do something slightly quicker than is humanly possible (laughs) (laughs) and and that's fine and you just you know you just be calm about it do it as quick as you can do it without getting it wrong you know make sure you get it right and do it quickly and just explain what you're doing while you're doing it
0: there always has to be a test i hate that
2: yeah i hate tests
0: um (laughs) How many years now have you been uh, freelancing?
2: Uh, I think it's 10 years now. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, I think so. 10 years, yeah. And what's been your uh, strategy as far as staying in business? Yeah, that's a tough one, actually, because I, I probably should have a strategy, and I haven't. I've just sort of – it's <laughs> kind of just happened, and its it's been okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I was so – for the first kind of year I was freelancer, I was quite lucky because I I still got a bit of work from the studio.
0: Mm.
2: When, you know, be either clients that I was used to getting or just tougher sessions when the when the particularly demanding sessions would come through, I would get them because I was obviously the most experienced. So we did like uh we did some things like on a TV show. There was a TV show for Channel Four that we did and it was three bands doing three songs all recorded, all in a day, all in a 12-hour day. So that's including set up and pack down and everything else, plus a film crew who want to do a few takes for themselves. So things like that, there's an immense amount of work getting all that set up and stuff. And I did all of those sessions and, and, and things that were demanding like that where it wasn't just put up a vocal mic and hit record. It was we've got an awful lot of logistics to cope with here and everything's got to still sound good even though we've got no time. So got a lot of that which is kind of fun those sessions are, are crazy and you're exhausted but they are you know it feels good at the end it's fun um and and then I got I was managed by some producer managers a producer management company who I won't name but they were they were one of the better ones you know that were around and it was cuz I just got the Grammy and stuff so um I was in a good place in terms of profile I'm not going to have a manager again, I don't think. It's probably worth getting into, actually. I mean, this, yeah. this is a subject that everybody talks about, and, and and you know, it is a thing. So th- how it panned out for me was they were very, very nice people, and I'm still friends with some of them. They were very, very good people. Um, however, they like I was with them for three years, and the third year I thought I'll just have a look through everything I've done this year. I've been kind of busy, probably working... Between 50 to 70% of the days when I was able to work, I was working at reasonable rates. So, you know, financially that was fine, and time-wise that was fine. But obviously there was scope to improve. It wasn't every day. So I thought, I'll look through over the year and see how many days I brought in compared to how many days the management brought in. And if they're bringing in about 20% of the days, then that's kind of fine, you know, that's fair enough. They're managing the rest and they're bringing in a bit of work too. And I counted up, and in that year, the days that they had brought in had totaled zero in a year. Wow! <laughs> exactly. So I thought, oh, you're not really, this isn't adding anything here. Because as well, I am perfectly happy to invoice people. I'm happy to tell people how much I charge. You know, that, those conversations I don't, I don't find uncomfortable um, and if someone's got a manager, you know, I'll have that conversation with their manager. But I've had those conversations with artists plenty of times and it's not weird. It's fine. They know that they've got to pay you. They know it's not free. And you just say how much you, is going to be. And sometimes you can work out a bit of a deal if they're a new artist, self-funded, struggling, and, but they want a bit of work. So, you know, we can do a deal over a number of tracks and, you know, that sort of thing. Everybody does it. And normally it's just your manager that does it, but I'm happy to do that myself. And I send off an invoice and if it isn't paid, I'll say, you owe the money now.
0: Yeah, it's, um, I, you know, I don't have a problem with those that do have a manager. But it, it does perplex me that, you know, you got to find somebody that really represents your not only you as a person, because you may be a perfectly nice person, but you may get a manager that really ruffles people's feathers.
2: Yeah. And then that's a problem. Because then that looks like that's what you're like. You know, that looks like the unfiltered you.
0: Yeah. If I'm ever in that position where somebody wants to manage me, I, I don't know if I would take them up on it. I think I, I would choose to represent myself.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: When it comes to artists that, you know, you say, okay, it's going to be this much, whether mm-hmm. it's the manager or the artist, and they they kind of go, oh, really? Hmm. Negotiating. How? Yeah. How does that work for you?
2: Everyone's different, really. Each, each case is different, but I'll do things like if if they haven't got what it needs to be, then I'll go like if it's producing, you know, mm-hmm. then I'll go okay. Well, why don't I just mix it then, you know? And then that's going to be less, less studio time, less money for me. You mm-hmm. know, it's cheaper to get me to mix it than to produce and mix it. Or I'll go well, why don't we do an EP, you know? Why don't Or why don't I do three of the tracks on the record and you do the others a bit cheaper and just try and find a way of obviously it depends how much i want to do the gig you know Uh and you know and find a way of making it work you know and you know i can take a little bit of a cut if they're if you know if off my per track rate if we're doing five tracks or ten tracks i don't mind doing a little bit of a discount across a whole load of stuff but uh but equally you know i'm making a living yeah, as everybody is, and this is how I do it. And, so,
0: and obviously, you're in a position where, with your credits, you probably—I think it's a perception thing—you stand to be in a stronger position because you could say, "Yeah, I have worked with Amy Winehouse and Mark Ronson and Jet," and and I see actually, uh, it's—I'm reading that you've worked with Adele as well. Is—is is that accurate?
2: That is. That was uh, off the first album. Uh, again, it was a Ronson thing. Um, there's a track called "Cold Shoulder" on Nineteen, which we did.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you get associated with somebody, a producer like Mark Ronson, from an engineering perspective, that could really go far.
2: Yeah. 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 He, He seems to change his engineers fairly regularly every few years or so. So Shares the uh, shares the love around, which is nice of him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I haven't talked about it for a while on the podcast, but early on I, I talked about it extensively. I, I always talked about people taking all their money and going gear crazy and buying. Oh, you know, I'm making a lot of money now, so I, I'm going to just buy this piece of gear and this mic and this mic preamp. What's your right.
2: attitude? Uh, well, I have to kind of com- compartmentalize it. Um, so what I do is I... I charge separately. I charge for me and I charge for the studio.
0: Interesting. How do your clients react to that?
2: Uh, I don't think they find it that odd because they know that's that's how it normally works if we were to go somewhere else. you know. And uh, So, for example, uh, for mixing I tend not to because everybody expects a kind of all-in-one price for mixing mm-hmm. and that's kind of normal. And I know how long a mix is going to take, so it's not that big a deal for me. I can kind of incorporate it in and then I personally – separate it off I have a separate account a separate bank account which is the studio account so I will put an amount in that's kind of relevant to how long I spend on the mix from my mix fee but if it's any sort of recording producing any of that sort of stuff then it's this is how much I charge and then the studio is this much a day Um, and I think as well I charge as little as I can get away with to be honest for my studio to keep it kind of buoyant you know to keep it going covers rent electricity plus you know a little bit more for when gear gets broken, you know, or if I want to invest in something at the end of the year, you know, see what's left in the account. Cause I don't, I don't see that as particularly a profit stream more as just uh, a way of a good way of working to have my own place. And if it can be funded by the projects as it should be, then, um, then it all works out quite well for everybody. So I've got quite a nice studio now and, what I'm charging for it isn't very much relative to what I suppose I probably could if I were running it solely as a commercial facility. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then that means people don't really complain about that. I've never had anyone complain about how much I charge for the studio. And it means what I hope is when people come to work here, they feel very relaxed about the time they're spending here. Nobody's looking at the clock and worrying about, you know, we've got to get this done in this amount of time um, because we've only got this amount of money for the studio and because I don't like that sort of way of working. But then on the other side of the coin, I obviously don't want someone to do one track here and set up for a month because then the amount that I charge as a fee isn't really going to cover the rent. So the fact that there is a daily rate for the studio keeps people's eyes on the ball a little bit. So it's cheap, it's cheap, but it does add up, you know, so don't, don't waste time. I find everyone expects the production or the mixing to be a set fee per track as opposed to a daily rate. Um, uh, but the fact that a studio is a daily rate is also expected, you know, people don't seem to have a problem with that. So it seems to work well to balance that out.
0: But yet you don't do that with the mixing because people's expectations are different.
2: Yeah, as well. Cause, cause nobody ever comes to mixing these days. So, um, it will take as long as I want it to take, you know, so, um, so it's not a case of I'm not worried that somebody's going to come down and spend a week doing one song and trying every single different possibility. Okay. That just doesn't happen. So I'm all right to just do an all in one kind of fee and and know that that's that's not going to get crazy that's not going to go blow out proportion
0: and i know this is getting micro level here but when it comes to you said you have two accounts you know there's one for you and there's one for the studio do you draw money from do you look at that as a source of profit for you to draw money out of the studio or do you just try to reallocate that into the expenses of the studio
2: yeah that kind of it does kind of get covered by the expenses of the studio um i don't draw any money out as a personal thing, because as I say, I keep it kind of fairly bare bones so that, you know, if I, occasionally I buy a bit of gear, mm-hmm. you know, this year I bought a Fatso and a, what's that? And a Cowrack EQ um, are the two bits of gear that I bought this year because there was sufficient spare money in the studio account to do that. Okay, okay. And that would be about as far as I would go.
0: I, you know. I, I like but, how you how you do that. I like the mechanics of that.
2: Mm, otherwise I'd go nuts. <laughs> I'd buy loads of gear when we wouldn't be able to pay the mortgage. So this is how it is managed.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Um, When you mix, do you tend to charge a a per song fee?
2: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And do you? What do you do in the case when the client is just going on for endless revisions?
2: I haven't had it that bad. I mean, to be honest, the way I've set my room up is to enable revisions to be very simple and not time consuming. Okay. I've obviously got I've got Pro Tools it all comes into the neve 8816 line mixer okay so which has its own recall but i i tend to barely move any knobs on that okay Um, and i have a bunch of outboard but what i do with my outboard is a lot of it's clickable and if it isn't clickable you know the knob is you know set by clicks i'll actually line it up to a point you know like a dot or a line and work within those parameters, and like for things like a like a compressor, obviously you want some quite intimate control over the how it's going into the compressor and hitting it. But I'll just because I'm doing it as an insert on Pro Tools, I'll do an insert before there to adjust adjust my in and out, but leave on the compressor the knob lined up to a point. And what that means is the recall is instant and exact. Mm. So I can re- I can recall a song within. A couple of minutes do whatever revision they want to do and send it off to them and it's you know it's been a 15 minute hole in my day um which is not a big deal okay and then i can instantly be back to wherever i was before
0: now living where you're living and having the mm-hmm. studio where it's at do you find that um difficult to get client get clients to continue to come to you or do you pretty much rely on word of mouth and and marketing uh online to to bring people to you
2: yeah that's that seems to work really yeah I didn't notice I didn't really notice a different in difference in the amount of work between when I was in London and when I was out here really it's kind of been the same and that was one of the reasons for moving out was because I after I was when I went freelance after a couple of years I actually started sharing a production room in Metropolis with um a friend of mine called Chris Potter who's um Chris is a engineer producer did like a lot of well all the verve richard astroff stuff all that kind of stuff Hmm. so we shared a room for about five years which worked out really well but then uh during that time i moved out here um out of london and i was driving in for you know whatever 45 minutes and then sitting in the room on my own to mix something or edit something or whatever i happened to be doing that day and then driving home again and thinking this is a big waste of my time (laughs) why don't I get something out here? <laughs> and there's still the recording days, obviously the recording days when you have people around, but I find people quite like coming here. You know, I, I'm amazed people come out for meetings here. When I say, okay, a meeting, I'll come into town, you know, I'll come and see you somewhere in London. And they're like, no, 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 no. Well, I'll come out. It's fine. I'll come out. And people just want to come out for a little drive out to the countryside and uh, and enjoy the kind of fresh air for a bit and then go back into London. So yeah, it's um, it hasn't, being a drawback i think i'm close enough to to the city that it isn't a drawback being where i am it's actually a bit of a benefit
0: do you have any uh routines or habits that you are in the habit of doing whether it's running or you know an exercise routine or a, a drug routine or a, you know an, uh, a religious routine anything like that
2: uh exercise I'm actually out of it at the moment because I've got what's called a tendinopathy, which is just something with my Achilles, which hurts. And I have to do a bunch of stretches and physio to try and get rid of. But um, but yeah, running is, uh, I discovered a couple of years ago and um, and is definitely a great thing, especially first thing in the morning. It's, um, yeah, it kind of gets the brain going in a way that um, would normally take two hours and three cups of coffee, um, a 25 minute run has the same effect and makes everything else feel good as well. So, um, yeah, that's uh, when I'm not, when I haven't got a bad ankle, that's definitely my thing.
0: That's great. I mean, especially considering how much we all sit around all the time
2: exactly i mean to be honest i got a fitbit that's what it was someone gave me a fitbit for for a birthday present and and then that started to make me think about steps and walking and and being more active and then and then i would do competitions with a couple of friends of mine who've also got fitbits where you kind of <laughs> compete to get the best <laughs> the highest number by the end of the week so then i took up running because that was a good way of winning
0: yeah my uh, um, you turn it into a game and it, and it changes everything a sense of competition yeah.
2: Yeah, if you know you can beat two school friends at the end of the week by having run a bit, then then it's more reason to run. It's good. It's a great thing. I guess it also it sort of made there was a, a quote I heard somewhere that said, uh, what you do with your body in your forties determines what you can do with your body in your seventies. Oh. Um which is as I'm I just last week turned forty two, my parents are just turning seventy. It just made me think that, you know, that's worth bearing in mind. And, you know, they are, they're very active and they play with, you know, my children, the grandkids, and I want to be able to do that too and I can't do that if I spend my life in my 40s sat in a chair in front of some speakers and doing nothing else. Because so, I'm not a big sports kind of person, really. It's not like the only sport I watch on telly is um, is Formula One, which is the geekiest sport, you know, that's available. <laughs> and uh, so so running has made the big difference. I like running. It's... Uh, yeah, it's, it's something that I can do that I just put my shoes on and go and and it's happening as opposed to any admin around going swimming or playing football or something like that.
0: What about your work-life balance? Do, does uh, How do you and your wife, uh, you know, maintain a, a solid relationship and yet
2: still work? That takes effort as well. Like anything else, that takes a bit of concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously I've been doing this for a long time and she understands the hours thing. So there are times when things are crazy, and I'm not about as much as I should be. Um, but then you kind of, you. the important thing then is to balance that out so that then the days when things are quiet, you know, I'll get home early. And, you know, and, and times when I'm doing things like, occasionally I do sample pack work and things like that, you know, um, and when I'm doing stuff like that, you know, there are no clients. There's there's The deadline is quite relaxed. Um, until I say, okay, I'm ready to go and then they'll work out a deadline for me. So on times like that, I'll pick up the kids from school and I'll try and, you know, be as involved as possible. And sometimes it's something like I'll pick up the kids from school, do their dinner, have dinner with my wife and then come back into work about eight o'clock and do sort of three hours in the evening and then go home again after that. So, okay. Um, the, the advantage of the, lo- the studio being local as well—it's a ten-minute drive, so it's fine. You know, when it was forty-five minutes, that wasn't an option. So, the fact I can nip in and out and kind of do things like that is um, is a big benefit of the studio being local.
0: How many kids do you have? Three. Wow, you're outnumbered. Okay. What are their <laughs> yeah, What busy. are their ages?
2: Uh, the oldest one is very nearly nine. Okay. Uh, middle one just turned seven, and the youngest one is four in, like, three weeks. Oh, okay, okay.
0: I've got two boys, nine and 11, so I, I feel your your victories and your defeats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, my oldest two are boys, and then there's a little girl who uh, who is in charge. <laughs>
0: of course. Well, she's so, the boss of it yeah. all, of, naturally.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, there was one thing that I thought might be interesting to talk about. Oh, please bring it up, yeah. Okay, which was basically, um, it was something that that's kind of relevant to people working in studios on their own, which kind of is happening more and more, that people are out just doing things like I am, where you, you build a studio in a space and, and you get on with it. I probably built this two years ago, mm-hmm. and obviously it's the sort of thing that I'd always dreamed of doing, of having my own studio full with all my own gear and, you know, favourite toys, you saw the modular synth wall and all that sort of stuff. And then about a year in, started to go a bit mad. And I was wondering what's going on. Why is what what is it about this that's not that feels really wrong? And it felt I felt really like not happy about the studio. And it wasn't a sound thing. It was just not wanting to be here, which is weird because I really enjoyed the work and loved all the stuff I was doing, great projects. And it suddenly clicked. I realized what it was one day when I was just sat in my mixing position, turned around to the empty room behind me and thought, that's it. It's the realization that if I don't change something, I'm probably going to be pretty much sat in this room on my own for the next 25 years. You know, 95% of my work is, as with a lot of people who are mixers or whatever, you know, is on your own. Yeah. And I thought, that's what it is. That's what's freaking me out. And that's what I've got to do something about. So I had a bit of a think and a sort of... A bit of a chat to a couple of friends to see what they were up to and what they were doing and who do similar things, you know. Because that's the drawback of the rural studio, you know, the being near home, living out of London and stuff like that is is that you, you know, it is more isolated. But then what I did is something came up. There's a few friends of mine that do lecturing and things like that around various places. And then something came up that was, there's a place called Leeds College of Music, which is a really good kind of, really good forward-thinking conservatoire that, for for engineering and 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 music and writing and all that sort of any kind of music qualifications and uh a tutoring job came up there for their masters in in music production so then uh so applied for that and got it and and it's basically 30 mondays in a year i go and uh tutor master students on on making records and just talking about making records really which is um has made a huge difference because it's just it's the one day sort of not every week obviously because it's 30 weeks of the year but one day most weeks that i know i'm out still working but i'm out and talking to people and talking about work and 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 there's a good saying of if you really want to learn how to do something then teach how to do it because you really kind of push yourself, yeah. and and they ask you questions you weren't expecting, and you're like, oh, actually, that's a really good question, um, and you sort of have to define what you think about things and work out things. But it's made a big difference. So if uh, you know, the, there may be other people who may not be experiencing that sort of thing now, but may it may come across them when they realise that their their job is very solitary or it can be so the isolation really
0: started to get to you
2: yeah it started to be a problem initially it was it was great you know and I loved that fact and then after a little while it was after about a year it started to it started to be a problem then and then I realized that that was what it was that was a problem thankfully I, I worked out what it was and now doing the bit of doing the bit of tutoring is um is fun and interesting and also is the balance required to actually speak to people and uh, have human contact because that's what humans are supposed to do. <laughs> have you done anything
0: to your studio that helps while you're there to kind of, in terms of that
2: isolation? Th- uh, not really. No, no, that kind of feel good about it now. That uh, turned out that was the thing that needed to, that was all that was required was just that little bit. And actually it's led on to then after that, because this is always good. I way I'm, I'm always up for embracing a new thing. If a new experience or possibility for a new thing comes along I'm always all over it um which you know isn't always a good idea but but some good things have come out of it <laughs> <laughs> like that that Tina Fey as a quote which is um something like just just say yes and you'll work out how to do it afterwards yeah um from doing that I've I've just set up a website literally just set up it like went live this week called the mixconsultancy.com which is basically a, a, a sort of a bit of an extension of what I kind of realized I enjoyed doing it the, the, with the master's students, which is kind of helping people that are learning to mix by by giving them advice on it. It's, I've had it with a few clients before. I don't know if this happens to many people, but clients that are friends and they're sort of like, you know, Dom, I don't have a budget for this, so I'm not going to ask you to do anything. <laughs> but if you could have a listen and give me a few ideas on what I should be doing, then that would make a huge difference so it's kind of that really. And so that's quite an interesting thing that, you know, could turn into be quite an exciting little um sort of side project, which is solely I wouldn't have thought of doing it if I hadn't done the the thing in the college first and, and so on. So yeah, it can lead to good things. Helps break the routine
0: too a bit. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. otherwise going you, know, somewhere different.
0: you have your family routine, you get up and then you come to the studio, and then that it's just like groundhog day every day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And occasionally I'll, I'll be in, you know, because of a session, I'll be in a studio in town or doing something slightly different. But but I'm almost always, you know, 99% of my work is in this room, which is what it was designed for. That was the point. But then, yeah, then you've got to balance that out with with being a real human being.
0: Do you have any natural light in the studio? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do have thick acoustic cloth curtains so that can go if I wanted to. So, like, I did a vocal session this afternoon. And um, I kind of prefer those to be a bit dark and just darkened out so it, you're just concentrating on the music and the vocal and, and all of that. So I have my synth on, which is loads of flashing lights, little LEDs, um, a couple of lamps, and then I pulled the curtains and turned the lights off just so it was a bit darker and a bit more kind of intense environment. Which are quite light like for recording.
0: And you don't have an ISO booth. So it's, it's, right? No. Okay. So you. No, I don't like them. And that's, and that's great. I, you know, when I have people over for overdubs at my house in my, in my studio, um, it's great because there's no talk back. It's just, hey, so exactly. What do you think? And
2: yeah. I was, you know, if someone's playing guitar, I'm sat next to him and we're talking about the part. You know, it, the, 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 you don't get, the artist doesn't get that isolating moment of, being in there in silence and on their in a room on their own with headphones on and not hearing anything and you know that's that's not a creative atmosphere at all so yeah i'd, I'd even when i had a booth i would tend to get the singer to sing in the room with me and we just put headphones on and
0: i like that well dom thank you so much for helping uh navigate the the time difference between us and uh being on the show i certainly appreciate it
2: no problem at all Oh, Glad to be on. It's a good show.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you.
2: Yeah, certainly. I, I like listening to the show anyway. So,
0: Thank you, and uh, have a good evening.
2: Thanks. Yeah, I'm going to go and eat some dinner now. Have a good lunch. Good. Do- <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going
0: to go have lunch.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: Thanks, Dom. All right.
2: Thank you very much. Cheers.
0: Mr. Dom Morley here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great to have Dom on. That was a, a long time coming. We've been emailing each other back and forth for quite some time. So glad that happened. And uh, as usual, we are out of time. So I got to thank, of course, everybody involved. We got to thank Mr. Cliff Truesdale, Mr. Cole Williams, and Mr. Chuck Smith. want to thank our sponsors, of course, Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Lawton Audio. And thanks for listening. I appreciate it. As usual, take care.